It's good to see all of you. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at First Colony Christian Church, and we're glad that you've joined us for worship this morning. If you have a Bible, open up with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 is where we will be this morning as we worship together in week 2 of Advent. Advent is this Christian season of waiting and anticipation as we prepare for the celebration of the coming of our Lord. Uh, in the Christian calendar, you have four weeks of Advent until Christmas Day. Christmas Day starts a 12-day celebration, feast of uh, the birth of Christ. And so this is a season where we are waiting and anticipating and building up the expectation of the coming of our Lord as we also wait and anticipate and expect the return of our Lord this segment coming. And so we're in a new uh, Advent series called What I Need for Christmas. Last week we started it and looked at the theme of love, these classic Advent themes. And we decided that what we really need for Christmas, despite all the different wants that we might have, is we need to receive God's love for us and we need to let that overflow out of our lives into the lives of other people, into our love for other people. And so um, we'll be spending the next few weeks on peace and on hope and on joy this morning that we'll talk about peace. Uh, what we need for Christmas is peace, both peace with God and peace with others. We live in a world that I think is desperate for peace, where peace is a commodity. Uh, in our own personal lives, we find conflict and strife and uneasiness and anxiety, particularly around the Christmas time, as you see those crazy family members, okay, and as you prepare to have everyone over to the house or to go over to somebody else's house as the hecticness and busyness of the Christmas season comes underway, um, oftentimes peace is a commodity. I think any look at the news in our nation recently shows that we live in a nation searching for peace and looking for peace um, and not necessarily finding peace right now. Uh, you've got protests happening all over our country. Um, even today, I think at the Galleria, another protest is planned um, over the deaths of Michael Brown and Eric Garner um, and perceived or real injustice in our world uh, continue to happen. We have people who are continuing to search for peace in our nation. Our world is a world in which peace is a commodity, in which peace is needed and desperately desired and searched for. Um, for years now, we've lived in a war-torn, um, violence-saturated uh, world um, where global tensions rise and nations do not get along. And so I think there's no more appropriate time than Advent, than, than now, to think about peace. You know, Christ's coming, his first coming as a child, and then his second coming are both associated with peace being brought into our world. A promise was given to the prophet Isaiah um, that a child would one day come and that this child would bring with him a few things, one of which is peace. And so there's always been this attachment to the coming of Christ, to this theme and hope and desire for peace. In Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 9.6, it says, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government authority shall be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This is a time of the year where Christians anticipate and long for the coming of the Prince of Peace, the one who will place the burdens of the world on his shoulders and establish peace. When Christ was born, the child is born in the manger. The angels come in Luke 2.14 and announce, um, Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus came to bring peace to the earth. And at a time when in our personal lives and in our national lives and in our global lives, we desire and need peace, there's no better place to look than at the coming of the Son and at his second coming, our hope and anticipation for that. One of my favorite stories to illustrate the connection between Christmas and peace um, comes from World War I. 
And I don't know if you've heard the story. It's the um, Christmas truce of 1914. Um, there were German and British and French troops battling in Belgium right after World War I had begun. And there was a stalemate between the two of them. They had been fighting for a little bit over a month. Um, there were approximately 100,000 dead so far in the fighting. They had reached the stalemate. And they had bunkered down in ditches, in trenches. And there was about 60 to 80 yards of what they called no man's land between these two bunkers and ditches. And no man's <coughs> land was filled with dead bodies, soldiers who had fallen in the field. And they were at this kind of stalemate, just kind of bunkered down, looking across at each other. And it was about time for Christmas to be celebrated. And the Germans did something a little bit odd. They started putting up Christmas trees near their ditches. And they started decorating. Um, and then the story goes that all of a sudden a hymn started to be sung. Uh, and the hymn was Silent Night. The movie's been made about this, The Christmas Truce. The Silent Night was sung. And then all of a sudden, the opposite side started to join in in the singing of the hymn. And then more hymns and more hymns were sung. And then before you knew it, one side had raised up a white flag. And then the other side raises up a white flag. And then soldiers emerged from one ditch holding white flags and saying Merry Christmas in the language of the opposition, the language of the soldiers they were fighting against. And perhaps, understandably, with some caution, they watched them approach, thinking maybe this was a, a trap or a trick, until they saw that they were unarmed and were coming over as a peace offering. And so they walked out as well with a white flag saying, Merry Christmas, season's greetings to those of the opposite army. And what happened is this miraculous, glorious week of celebration between these two enemy foes, where legend has it, story goes, they exchanged Christmas gifts. Things that they had in the battlefield, tobacco, different things of that nature. Story has it they spent this time burying the soldiers who had fallen together. The German troops burying the French troops and the French troops burying the German troops and spending time at the funerals telling about this person. And, and you had enemy soldiers crying over these people who had been killed, even in the other opposing force. And story goes that there was a football game, a lively game of football, soccer, real football, right? Played in the no man's land between these two trenches, these two ditches. A Christmas service was performed. They worshiped together. They embraced together. They had down their weapons. Something happened during World War I in, these, in the middle of these two trenches where the, the coming of the Savior, the birth of the Savior, brought with him this sense of peace, this sense that we should lay down our weapons and embrace our neighbors. I think it's a beautiful example, a beautiful illustration of what Christmas should cause us to do, to receive the peace that God has given us in Christ and to extend that out to the people around us, even our most hated enemies. What the world really needs this Christmas season is peace. What you really need this Christmas season is peace. Now, not all the soldiers were on board with this ceasefire. Some of them had to be quarantined um, because they were not willing. They thought it was inappropriate to be doing this with the opposing army. Again, legend has it that one of these soldiers is Adolf Hitler, a young Adolf Hitler who said this was not appropriate to be going out and celebrating Christmas with the opposing armies. But for this one glorious week, the fighting had stopped, and the celebration of a child being born brought together enemies in celebration and rejoicing. It wasn't long before the commanders of High got word of this ceasefire and were not happy with it, and so told them um, that this was not acceptable. Fighting resumed on January 1st. You've got to imagine how 
um, weird or different it is to be fighting an enemy force from just days before you were embracing and you were talking with and you were exchanging Christmas presents with. Um, but peace with God, peace with others. It's what Christmas is about. It's what we need for Christmas. Um, we talked last week about love being what we needed for Christmas, one of the things we need for Christmas, but how we often substitute love with something cheap, with something less satisfying, less fulfilling. And, and what we talked about last week was we talked about substituting love with attention, um, attention for stuff or attention for things that we do versus a true love for one another, where it's, there's a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. I think we also do the same with peace. We substitute peace. Peace can be hard to achieve. Peace can cost a lot. Peace can be difficult to attain. And so we find these cheap, ultimately unsatisfying substitutions for, uh, for peace. And I think the, the two substitutions we have for peace are ignorance so we want to forget about our problems and forget about our anxieties and forget about our conflicts and our strifes to pretend that they're not there, to distract ourselves. And that's easy to do at Christmas time. And in so doing, we have a pseudo-peace. We have a kind of peace, but it's a cheap peace that comes with the cost of not recognizing reality for what it is. So there's ignorance, blissful ignorance, and there's also dominance. This is where one uses power or force or coercion over situations or people to achieve this false sense of peace. It's where you push a conflict below the surface. You don't actually fix or reconcile the two relations um, that are opposed to each other. You just have one in power and in dominance make it appear that things are all right. Think of the peace of Rome. Rome claimed to bring peace to the whole world. But anyone with any sort of intelligence knew it was no sort of peace that they brought. There was still conflict. There was still problems and anxiety and strife. It was just below the surface. Because Rome had this high hand of power. So this morning I want to look at and explore the theme of peace, the peace that has been given to us as Christians. And to do so, I want to be in Philippians 4. We're going to read together in Philippians 4, verse 4 through verse 9. Uh, I think that's one of the most beautiful passages we have in the scriptures on this topic of peace. And we'll see that the peace of God and the peace with others that God has called us to is what we truly need this Christmas over and above ignoring our problems and, and using domination to, to get rid of our problems as well. So Philippians 4, verse 4, if you'll read along with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, Paul's writing this letter, this passage here from prison. I think it's even more remarkable when you read through Philippians, knowing that he is writing from a jail cell. He's writing about rejoicing and being um, happy in the Lord and not being anxious and having peace, even among his difficult situations. Um, you see peace mentioned twice here. The, the God of peace will be with you at the end of this passage. And then we're told that in verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. A few things I want to point out from this passage this morning. Three. Um, the first one is how God is described here in verse 9. God is described as a God of peace. We receive peace and extend peace to other people because that's who God is. Six times, actually, in the New Testament... 
Um, God is described in this, this way, this phrase, a God of peace, the Lord of peace. This is one of his attributes. In his eternal state, his character, his nature, God is peaceful. He's at harmony with himself and with others. The triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit has no anxiety, has no strife, has no conflict, has no problems to be reconciled between the persons of the Godhead. From all of eternity, God has been a God of peace and continues to be a God of peace. He exists eternally without anxiety, without conflict, without strife, in perfect happiness and in perfect harmony. And in fact, as the Jewish people would tell this story, they would say that creation is an overflow out of this peace that God had within himself. They call it shalom. This is the Hebrew word for peace. And shalom represented this well-being, this wholeness, where all the parts come together and work perfectly to achieve joy and pleasure and glory and good and life. And so creation, God creates, and he creates the world originally in shalom. All the parts are working together, and you've got human beings, and they're in right relationships with God. They have shalom with God, peace with God, and they have shalom with each other. Adam and Eve have peace with each other, and they have peace with creation, with the animals, and with the land. But because of rebellion and sin and Satan and death entering into the world, the shalom, this peace, is fragile, and it's fractured, and it's shattered. And what happens is man is separated from God. There's no more shalom between man and God. And not long after that does the shalom between man and himself disappear. And violence begins in the universe, a violence which continues to spin out of control to this day. And the peace between creation and man is gone as well. But from the beginning, God, the God of shalom, the God of peace, has been committed and um, um, completely devoted to a mission, to a project, to restore and redeem creation, to bring back into harmony what has been disharmonized, to bring shalom back to his creation. And he does this primarily through the sending of his son, through the Christ child, through the baby in the manger. He sends his son to restore shalom in our hearts and in our minds and in the world. Jesus says himself that he came to, gave us, to give us peace. He has come to give us peace. He's come to restore the peace we once had but lost, the peace we have with God. Romans 5, 8 says that by his blood, by his cross, we have been restored. We now have peace with the Father through the Spirit who's been poured out into our hearts. We have peace with each other. This is such a huge theme throughout all the New Testament that often gets overlooked. But the, the idea is that with Christ coming, all these boundaries and barriers that separated humanity are now being torn apart. So that people who were once far away, who were once enemies, who were once not friendly to each other, can now be brought together in community. Can now be brought together in fellowship through Christ. The Jewish people and the Gentile peoples had been separated and had lots of things separating them. And in Christ, in Ephesians, Paul says, they've become one people. And males and females had had lots of things separating them. But in Christ, there is no male and there is no female. And slaves and masters had lots of things separating them. But, but Paul says, in Christ, there is no slave, there is no master. They become one. The church is an example, is a, a witness, manifests this peaceful reconciliation of Christ when you see a group gathering with different ethnicities and with different economic statuses and with different political leanings and with, with different ages. All the boundaries, all the barriers that break us apart are broken down with the peace that Christ brings into this world. Illustrated again, I think, beautifully by, by the Christmas truce in 1914. 
Jesus says in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. I've brought in the peace of God to my community and I'm leaving it with you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In John 16, 33, Jesus says, I've said these things to you that in you, in me, you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus comes to bring us peace. Jesus also comes to transform us into peacemakers. Jesus brings peace and then calls us to bring peace out into the world as his body. Again, I think this is a task often overlooked by the church. We're called to embody and bring the peace of Christ to the world around us. And where we find anything that's separating humans from each other in violence and hatred and misunderstanding, we're called to sacrificially bridge the gap so that there might be reconciliation, there might be peace. In Matthew 5, 9, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is listing out good news in various standings of people. And he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And it's, it's interesting and noteworthy, he doesn't say blessed are the peacekeepers, not blessed are the ones who keep things the status quo. A peacekeeper usually ignores the problems that exist or uses domination to push them below the surface. A peacemaker, though, faces problems heads on, reconciles groups that are far away from each other. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the Son of God. So the first thing to, to notice here is how God is described here as a God of peace. This is what God is and is about in our world. And then you see a command and a promise of peace given to us. He gives us this command in verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything. This is a command. Do not be anxious about anything. Since we live in a world of rebellion where we often don't have peace with God and don't have peace with others and don't have peace with creation, there are a lot of things to be worried about and to be anxious about and to be fearful about. I read commands like this, I think, a little differently than a typical person. I have a diagnosed anxiety disorder. I naturally react with anxiety to a lot of situations. I find commands like this almost impossible to obey. This command itself gives me anxiety. I have anxiety about the command to not have anxiety. It's this, this command though, that we receive from the Lord, don't be anxious. And with it comes a promise. There's a promise that in Christ, the peace of God, verse 7, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's interesting how he talks about the peace of God here. He says, one, it's, it surpasses all rationality. It surpasses, it's super rational. It goes beyond how you can understand it. You can't fully explain it. When you see the peace of God in action, when you see someone containing it and having it and enjoying it, there's no way to explain it. When Paul's faced with circumstances that, that other people would not be able to be peaceful during, he's able to have <laughs> peace that surpasses understanding. And then this peace is an active peace. He says the peace is going to guard your hearts and your minds. These two places where anxiety often comes in, where fear comes in, where you are called to take up weapons against one another. You are called to separate yourself from others and from God. The peace of Christ though, is going to guard you from those things. This is a military term. The idea here is there is a surrounding army around you protecting you from invasion. And so like a city surrounded by an army, um, no longer afraid of invasion, can now sleep safely at night so you and I now can feel comforted and protected. The peace of God has guarded us, is guarding us, will guard us from all things that might attack us in our hearts and in our minds. Elsewhere in the New Testament, peace is also described as this active and living thing. In Colossians 3, we're told that the peace of Christ should rule over God's people. It should be our master. 
This should be the one who controls us. The peace of Christ rules over you. Here, he's guarding our hearts and in our minds. And then in this passage, I think you get a lot of advice. I want to look at three practices of peace that Paul gives us here. Three ways that we might develop peace. You'll notice he uses this word practice in verse 9. He says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. There are things that we do that develop our, our ability to receive God's peace and to be peaceful with other people. Later on in Philippians 4, he'll say, I've learned how to be content. This is good news, especially for an anxious person like me. The peace that God gives is not a peace based on our natural abilities or our natural inclinations or tendencies. Some of us are inclined to be more relaxed. Some of us are inclined to be more uptight. But this peace is a peace given to us straight from the Spirit, straight from God himself. It's a peace that's available to all through Christ. Three practices, I think, that Paul gives us here. The first one is prayer. Christians are, I think, always literally a few prayers away from peace. We're a few prayers away from peace. You'll notice he says this, Don't be anxious about anything, but instead of being anxious, in response to being anxious, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Your peace in this world will never outrun your time in prayer. If you're looking for peace, Paul says, find it in prayer. Your peace in this world will never outrun the time that you spend in silence before God and communion with God. He notice, um, and he says this is well worth noting. He says, make your requests known to God um, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, which is kind of an odd or counterintuitive way to describe this. Normally we would ask for something and then give thanksgiving once we have received it. He says here that we go and we ask for this gift, we give this request with thanksgiving already in our hearts. One who gives a request, who asks for something um, with thanksgiving already in their hearts, it, it shows that they are fully and wholly and solely trusting in the one whom they're asking um, for a request from. Um, they, they give and they give with thanksgiving. They give with a sense of gladness in the answer they will already get. They truly trust God. We know in Romans 8 that God works out all things for the good of those who love him, who are called for his purposes. So there's nothing in your life, in our lives, there's nothing in the world that God will not one day fully make work out for our good. Which is why we're able to make requests for God, already giving thanks. Already knowing that all things are working out for our good. For the benefit of the redemption of the world. We have an example of this at the cross on Good Friday with Jesus crucified. What looks like the worst tragedy in the world. What looks like nothing good can come out of this. Good Friday ends with us locked in an upper room, scared and confused and in tears. And then Easter Sunday comes and we see God take the worst moment in history and turn it into the most beautiful, redemptive moment in history. I think there's something like an Easter Sunday coming for all of us where we see things in our lives that, that we once wondered how anything good could come from, made, made good, made pure, made true. So we pray. We're, we're just a few prayers away from peace. And this is a promise by God. I would encourage you to call God out on this promise. It is if you pray, if you, if you come to God with thanksgiving, this peace will guard your hearts, will guard your minds. The second thing he says, so pray, the second one is to think. He, he says, he lists out some things that we should think about in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, 
He says, think about these things. Now, these words he's using, true and just and pure and honorable, Paul often uses to describe doctrine. Truths about God and about man and about sin and about redemption. Truths about the world that we live in. Now, this is um, going against the grain of what you might find like a self-help book about anxiety or about finding peace. Usually it's about calming your mind and getting rid of thoughts and and getting rid of negative thoughts and not trying to bring up complex issues which you might not have all the answers to. Paul says, though, think about those things that are true. Think about those things that you know. Think about the big questions in life. And what often happens as Christians when we are stuck in a situation of unrest where we don't have peace with ourselves or with God or when we are at a, a place where we do not have peace with another person is we need to take some time to think about the bigger picture, about the bigger truths that we know and are committed to. And we'll find that that puts our current problems in perspective. Now, asking the bigger questions is not maybe a useful practice for, say, an atheist, right, who finds themselves in the middle of trouble or affliction. Um, Let's think about the bigger issues of life, the bigger questions of life. Well, I'm an accident, and there's no true meaning or redemption or purpose for any of these things that are happening I mean, it can be kind of morbid, kind of overwhelming. But for a Christian, these basic truths about who God is and what he's doing in Christ and who we are in Christ give us peace and joy and perspective. Um, it was two years ago. So if you, if you ever want to know how unlikable you are, how many things that there are that's wrong with you, become a teacher, okay? And emails will start coming in your way. Uh, and you'll be like, well, I never realized how much of a jerk I was and how many things there were. To complain about me. Um, a couple years ago, I was in a conflict with uh, a, a, a couple, uh, some parents, and it had gone on for a few weeks, and I'm an anxious person, and it had been eating me up, and I was losing sleep, and it was a, a real big problem in my life, and I, I got some advice from a friend who said, look, you need to sit down for an hour or two, and you need to think about the bigger picture of life. You need to think about the eternal perspective of what's going on here. You need to really ask yourself what's happening in the world and what this tiny moment in time is playing in the larger picture of the world. And those two hours of thinking through God as the creator of all things, me as the small little role player in the grand scheme of redemption, yet included in Christ's love, saved, protected, loved perfectly, unconditionally. Those those few minutes of, of thinking through the fact that even this, I know, is being worked out for my good. Even this will contribute to my Christ-likeness and my holiness. Gave me a change of perspective that allowed peace to come into my heart and into my mind. So we think. We think wisely as Christians. We don't stop thinking to get rid of peace. We think truly. We think correctly. I think in in some sense our 24-7 partisan news culture um, has us playing against ourselves in this capacity. Um, This is why I'm very hesitant uh, and, and overtly cautious about particularly vitriol, um, violent kind of partisan politics. Um, partisan politics, and we have these kind of, again, 24-7 news cycles of them, they pit each other against other people. And they place blame and accusation, and, and, and they oppose certain groups, and they, they provoke resentment and jealousy and anger. And I think they work often antithetically to the goal of the Christian faith which is to bring people together, which is to look past differences, which is to collaborate together towards justice and peace and wholeness. There's a sense in which we shouldn't ignore the news, right? We shouldn't ignore what's going on in the world, but our reaction to the news shouldn't be to blame and to accuse and to separate. 
It should be to put the news in the perspective of what God is doing in the world, who he's called us to be, how he's called us to love, even our enemies, even the ones against us. So we, we pray, we think. And then the third practice of peace is love. We love. You'll notice in this list the, the things that he says us to, tells us to think about change from more intellectual or things doing with the mind to more heart issues or affection issues. He says whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. What, what good is there in the world? What things are there to be worshipped and enjoyed? Um, our, not just our thoughts should be overcome, but our affections should be overcome. And if we think through this list, ultimately what comes up as the answer for all these things, worthy of praise, excellence, lovely, is God himself. It's God who is lovely. It's God who's worthy of praise. It's God who is commendable. And when we put our love in God and, and our priority, our first love is in God, we'll find a peace that sustains us. We'll find a peace that keeps us going. Um, there is this old school of philosophy called Stoic philosophy. And some people think Paul, in a sense, was a Stoic. They try to connect Paul's thought with Stoicism. I think there are big ways in which Paul is not a Stoic. Um, but the Stoics had some interesting ideas about how to go along with life, how to get along with life. And they believed in kind of going with the flow. And they kind of analyzed the problem of humanity in this way. Humans place their love in things that are out of their control. And because they're out of their control, they're always fearful. They're always anxious. They're always one moment away from having something ripped out of their life. So if you place your love in success, in succeeding in life, you're fearful and anxious about being able to succeed. And even once you succeed, you're fearful and anxious about holding on to that success about having it taken away from you one day. It doesn't create a stable, balanced person. It creates a person who's vulnerable, who can easily be torn down. Or if your first love, your first priority and commitment is family, you have a fear and anxiety about attaining a family. And even then, once you get a family, there's this fear and anxiety that can be ripped away from you, it can be torn apart from you. You're not a stable, secure person. And so the Stoics had their own things that they put in place. They said, let's instead, focus on virtue, on the type of person you are. And you can control that at all times. I think even in that, they're wrong. You don't think you can always control who you are. I think you will sometimes make bad decisions. I think that's just as changeable as anything else that will make you an unstable person. But uh, Augustine, another theologian, said, if we love God before we love anything else, if we love the immutable, that which will not change or will not abandon us, then what we'll find is we'll be firm and constant, and steady. Because there's nothing that can come in our lives which will take away the love of God, which will take away His work for us through Christ, which will take away the inheritance that we have in Him, the promises that we have from Him. True love in God, who's unchanging, is a, a thing that results in deep peace and a sustaining love, like a rock on a coast. No matter what waves or storms come crashing over it, it stands firm. It remains the same. So we pray and we think and we love. And as we practice these things, we receive God's peace and we're able to extend that peace out to the people around us. Um, you've probably heard of the, the popular hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. It Is Well With My Soul. It's written by a man named Horatio Spafford. And the story behind the hymn is actually very interesting. It was written after some very traumatic events in his life. So early on in his life, he lost a son and one of his sons died. And then Horatio um, experienced some financial ruin, not just once, but twice, actually. His 
business collapsed and his finances were taken away from him. At one point, he decided to travel across continents over the seas, and he sent his wife and four daughters ahead of him. And he was going to travel behind them and meet up with them. On the journey there, there was some problems. There was a shipwreck, there was a storm, and his four daughters died. And his wife survived. And she sent him back a telegram when she got to land with two words. Survived alone. And so he traveled to go meet up with his wife and to grieve with her over the loss of his four daughters. And the story goes that he wrote this hymn, It's Well With My Soul, as he passed by in the ship, the place where his daughters had died, the shipwreck. I'll read you just one verse from the hymn. Um, it, It says, this is the beginning of it, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. In the midst of this tragedy, he's able to say, peace like a river is attending me, is surrounding me. No matter what sorrows come my way, it's well with my soul. Why? Because he's, he's learned how to receive God's peace, to have this deep, unwavering, steady, stable peace. This is the love of God that we have. We often substitute it, again, I think with ignorance, or with domination. We try to ignore our problems and think we'll find peace there or try to dominate situations which create conflict and, and think that will get rid of our problems. There's a theological mistake behind these substitutions. Um, so there's a, a problem in our thinking about God when we try to substitute true peace for these other things. For instance, um, I think the theological mistake when we substitute peace for ignorance or domination is that we think that God doesn't care about our problems or God doesn't notice our problems. He's not aware of our problems. Or we think that God responds to conflict and strife with domination, with pure brute power, like Rome crashing down on top of everybody and saying, my way or the highway, and pushing conflict below the surface. But the gospel corrects both of these mistakes. We find in the gospel a God who's intimately aware of all of our problems, of all of our anxieties. We find in the gospel a God who became familiar with our anxieties in the Son, in the face of his Son. Jesus, who has compassion over the crowds who are like shepherds, sheep without shepherds. Jesus who cries over Jerusalem and her coming destruction. Jesus who cries when his friend Lazarus is dead. Jesus who sweats tears of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He who knew no anxiety, he who was peace, became unpeace became anxious for our sake. God has suffered with and for us. And we find in the gospel that God doesn't restore peace with dominance. He doesn't come in with an army. He comes in with service and sacrifice. God restores with love. God restores patiently. God doesn't push conflict below the surface. He actually goes through the hard work of restoring parties that were far apart. He gives up his rights so that we might be reconciled to himself. And he expects us to give up our rights so that we might be reconciled to other people. There's differences between ignorance and dominance and between peace. Ignorance causes us to distract ourselves from our problems, to pretend that they didn't exist. This is something that's easy to do during Christmas time. As our schedules get busy, as we, we get and play with new stuff, we drink away our problems, we play away our problems, we talk away our problems, we watch away our problems. But this is a pseudo-peace. That comes at a price. Or we use dominance in, in situations with others. Or we assert power or control over others, maybe in family relationships, to achieve this false sense of peace. But peace, though, doesn't ignore problems. It, it replaces them with God's presence and love. 
And peace doesn't um, push suffering and conflict under the surface, below the surface. It replaces it with reconciled and loving relationships that truly fix what's broken. It confronts that which separates with sacrifice and with love. What we need for Christmas is peace, the peace we have with God through Christ and the peace we're called to extend to others in our world. We'll close today like we closed last week with a couple Advent adventures. What are some practical suggestions about ways that we can cultivate peace in our lives this Christmas? The first one is this. Um, Maybe this Advent season, as we anticipate the coming of Christ, we can take some time to receive God's peace into our hearts. To, to, to let God's peace, the peace of God, the peace of Christ, guard our hearts and guard our minds. Perhaps we can spend time identifying areas in our lives where we find unrest and anxiety and fear and conflict and strife. And then perhaps in those areas in our lives which we've identified, we can go through our practices of peace. We can pray over them. We can think about them. We can place our love for God above our love for anything else which might get in the way of us having peace. We receive God's peace for us. Identify those areas and then pray and think and love. The second Advent adventure um, for this week is, is perhaps we should, in this season of Advent, begin to brainstorm concrete ways in which we might be peacemakers, in which we might create peace in the world around us. Perhaps there's someone you can reconcile with whom you currently are not at peace with. Perhaps right now you can think of that person or their name. Don't ignore the problem you have with so-and-so person. Don't dominate the problem that you have with such-and-such person. Go and be reconciled. Go and make peace where there is none. Maybe we can give gifts of peace. We can present presents of peace this Christmas time. Instead of things that cost lots of money, maybe we can do and perform and build and share things which will communicate and build up shalom in our families, and in our neighborhoods, in our country, and in our world. Christ came, the baby came to bring peace. And he'll come once again to fully and finally bring peace to the rest of the world. We're called to, in the season of Advent, receive it. Let it guard our hearts and our minds and to extend it out into the world around us. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all the love that you have shown us in your Son. I pray that for all the ways in our personal lives in which we need your peace, that you would allow us to receive it. I pray that for all the ways that our nation needs to receive your peace, that we would receive it. I pray for all the ways that our world needs to receive your peace, that we would receive it. I pray that the coming of your Son, that the anticipation of his second coming, would create in us a peace that overflows out into others, that we might take people who are unreconciled and reconcile them together, that we might be an example, a witness of a community brought together through the cross, through your your love for us and your Son. Father, be with us, bless us, and keep us this Advent season. We love you and give thanks for the coming of your Son, even as we wait and expect it. And it's in the name of the Son, and the Father, and the Holy Spirit, that we pray all things. Amen.